Good morning and welcome to Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. As always, any of the statements that are made on the show are not those reflecting the views of Howard County Community College, its faculty, staff, or employees. And any legal discussions we have are not intended to provide legal advice for your individual legal situation. If you have a legal problem, it's imperative that you marshal the facts of your situation, contact a lawyer, and get some good advice that's particularized to your situation. Today, we have a returning champion, the Howard County State's Attorney, Rich Gibson, making his third appearance on the show. Thank you so much for coming back, Mr. State's Attorney. It is my honor to be here, Bob. Thank you so much. So I think you were last on in 2019, and I wondered if there's anything new since that time. A few things. We had a pandemic that kind of uh, presented an unprecedented challenge for leadership and governance, and just about everyone in every aspect of everyone's life. And uh, we had to deal with that. We had to make some really hard decisions in the office. We started some new initiatives like LEAD. We started some new initiatives in the office like Restorative Justice Program. And uh, we also moved from our prior building where we were to a new building where we are now and had to make that work without having any, uh, dropping any balls. And uh, of course, you know, there's just, there's, there's managing an office of about 80 people and making sure you get things done right and serve the community well. And so we've had a lot of challenges that we've had to meet over that, that period of time. There can't be very many state's attorneys in Howard County history who have faced more challenges in a relatively brief period of time than you have. And just speaking as an attorney who practices in the bar, there is no perception that there have been disruptions in the force or anything. So congratulations on your success. Thank you. Thank you. very. It's, it's good to hear positive feedback. And thank you very much, Bob. Our goal is to serve the community, to make sure that justice is served properly, to make sure that police interact with the community safely, to make sure that cases are handled in an appropriate way. And, you know, it's an essential service. We don't have the luxury of coming up short. And so we have to meet the moment. And I believe we did. I'm glad that we had the opportunity. I'm glad I was in a position to actually affect change in this time. It wasn't the topic I intended to address, but given what you were saying, one of the things from reading the New York Times and the Post is that the murder rate nationally seems to have gone through the roof in 2020 in particular. And, and I wondered, have we had any of that in Howard County or has it kind of remained as it was? So Howard County is a safe space historically, and it remains that way. We have been fortunate. We have one thing that we have that really assists in maintaining a safe environment is a collaborative leadership across multiple levels of governance. And so I've been able to work closely with the county executive, very closely with our police chief, very closely with our sheriff, very closely with the attorney general's office, federal authorities. And so because of the collaborative nature of this environment where no one's really clashing, we're all working together, pulling in the same direction. And because of the community itself, we do have a, you know, we have a safe community. There's certain aspects of the community that lend itself to that. We really haven't seen the same trends. In fact, crime's gone down, which is, you know, interesting. We are right now at eight homicides. We're a population of 300,000 people. We're at eight homicides, which is essentially one above average, but one of those eight is a carryover from last year where the person was harmed in 2020 and then passed in 2021. And so when you look at all the numbers, just to be clear, a single homicide is too much for me. I am vigorously in favor of picking life and I, I believe in the sanctity of life and I believe that we should live in a safe community. But eight per, per 300,000 people, over 300,000 people, you compare us to every other jurisdiction in the area, Baltimore County, Baltimore City, Prince George's County, Montgomery County, Anne Arundel County, Carroll County, we are safer than every one of those in every metric. The only community that has less crime than us 
either per capita or just as taken as a total is Carroll County. And they're a third our size. There are 100,000 people. So again, super safe space. And we remain that way. And I'm grateful for it. Keep up the good work. Do you have a feel for why this is an issue nationally? I mean, is it the COVID? Is it mental health things derivative of the COVID? Or are economic circumstances compromised for a lot of people? Do you have a personal opinion about any of that? Sure, there's not one thing. Certainly, COVID exacerbated the mental health challenges that people are experiencing. Additionally, humans are social creatures, right? We believe in interaction. And when you're forced to isolate, that does challenge the psyche, right? And we were forced to isolate for a long period of time. Additionally, and this has to do with detection of incidences, a lot of crime is detected through social interaction. And so, for instance, you visit grandma in the nursing home and you observe bed sores on her and you say, wait, someone should be taking care of grandma and they're not. You can't visit grandma. You can't see those bed sores. You can't react to it. It doesn't get necessarily reported. Same thing is true for children being abused or spousal abuse. You go to school or work and they see signs of abuse. If you're not going to school and you're not going to work, those things aren't necessarily being detected at the same rate. And so in a lot of spaces, what you're seeing is a spike from our reemergence in society. Again, we haven't really seen a huge, we've seen a downward trend. So again, Howard County is blessed economically. And I think a lot of people in our community may have worked from home in advance of COVID. So it wasn't as much of a transition. There's a whole bunch of variables. But yes, I think that the financial stress associated with the pandemic, the emotional stress associated with the pandemic certainly leads to some negative behaviors in society. So there's some changes coming to Howard County, a lot of it initiated by your office in conjunction with the county executive and others. One of them is this so-called LEAD program. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. So the LEAD program is a law enforcement assisted diversion program. And it's a program that started off, I believe, in Seattle and has spread across the nation. We just didn't have it here in Howard County, but there are other spaces in Maryland that have had LEAD in, in effect for a while. When I was sworn into office, I was elected in 2018, sworn in 2019. In April, I believe, of 2019, I was visited by a colleague who worked for the governor's office and another colleague who was a public defender in Baltimore City. And they both presented me with information about the LEAD program. And I thought this would work here, right? And what it is, it's a diversionary program that tracks away from the traditional law enforcement criminal justice path, right? To be clear, I am not in any way afraid of using traditional mechanisms for pursuing criminal justice. However, while traditional mechanisms of, of like prosecuting someone, locking them up, incarceration, it's an effective tool. It shouldn't be the only tool, and it's not always the right tool. And so you need more options available to law enforcement personnel such as us to determine what the right course of action is. And so LEAD is used for nonviolent offenders people are committing lower level crimes. And what it does is it avoids the negative consequences associated with conviction. So the collateral consequences. So for instance, someone with a conviction for, you know, I don't know, theft, it's going to impact their ability to get certain jobs. It's going to impact their ability to get certain housing. It's going to impact their ability to get student loans or banking loans. It can impact their ability to get in the military. And so these are real stumbling blocks that to be clear, some individuals deserve to have because they engage in a really horrible action and they get what they get when they made that choice. However, for other individuals, it is unduly burdensome and draconian. And so there's another way to approach this without burdening them. And so this program 
the way it works is a police officer will interact with someone for a low level offense. They will reach out to our office, we'll check, we'll collaborate quickly. They will then be, if, assuming they're a good candidate for lead, they'll be referred to a lead coordinator who will meet with them. That lead coordinator will meet with them, assess them, and marry their particular issue to social services. It could be mental health treatment, it can be uh, and jobs treatment, it can be educational treatment, it can be employment assistance, it can be housing assistance, medical assistance, psychiatric assistance, et cetera, will marry you to the services you need at the root cause level. And assuming you complete their program, then you know we've saved money. So fiscally, it makes sense because you have not incurred the cost of processing that individual, of prosecuting that individual, of sentencing that individual, and, and storing that individual in a corrective state because they've never gone down that path at all. And you've addressed the issue quickly head on. I think that's really the plus to the program. So are there categories of offenses that sort of are seen as, as appropriate for this and others that aren't, or how, do, how does that work? Yeah, so we're looking at low level offenses, things like thefts, things like you know public urination, right? Someone who's, when I say thefts, like, like minor, Theft under, like minor shoplifting, misdemeanor right. shoplifting. We're looking for like low-level prostitution, right? Not human trafficking to be distinguished between the two, right? Like sure. that's a very different ball of wax, which we prosecute aggressively. But low-level prostitution, trespassing. Why are you stealing those work boots? Well, I need them to, to apply for a construction job. Okay, we'll, we'll buy your work boots. We'll connect you to some employment services and we'll help you get that job. You don't need to steal, don't steal in the future, right? That is a far faster and more fair way of dealing with that problem than prosecuting that person. And now they damn sure aren't gonna be able to get you know, the job in the future because they have this conviction that's impacting their employment opportunities. Has there been any statistical analysis of what percentage of existing prosecutions would be affected by this? It's gonna be small because it's not the bulk of our work, right? but it is worthwhile. And it does, again, bring, it brings energy, time, and effort savings, and it is better for the actual person who we're interacting with. I would imagine that there is some resistance in some quarters to something like this. And I wonder how you address that going forward, whether you're able to talk about benefits and time saved and for officers going to court and that kind of stuff. How do you go about breaking down barriers on that? I mean, again, we've, we have great partners, which is great. This is something where we have seven partner agencies. So the Sheriff's Office, the Howard County Police Department, the Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. We have a series of partners that are working with us on this. And part of it is just getting the word out and explaining the process and program to people. The, from a law enforcement perspective, you're going to have buy-in because it saves them time. Oh, right? Of course. And Beyond saving them time, it also makes them available for real serious offenses when they occur. So as opposed to I'm spending the next two, when you arrest someone, it's not quit. You know, you, I put the cuffs on you, but now I've got to bring you in. I got to book you up the process. I'm going to document everything. They're back out on the street to deal with a serious offense. That's definitely something that we want to help. I think that, that they, they certainly are willing to partner with us. There's also an aspect of the lead program that's community outfacing. So we have a community advisory board we kind of into like the NAACP. They meet with local churches and the Howard County Chamber of Commerce. So we're trying to reach out to these different entities to make sure that they are aware of what this program is, how it will be used, and the long-term goals and benefits of it. 
I mean, I would imagine aside from the benefits to the would-be offenders that if you're a merchant and somebody's shoplifting at your place and they get caught, then you're having to come into court at least once, sometimes multiple times for the prosecution and that you've got to be happy to have something, make an effort to alleviate future shoplifting, but also mean you don't have to come to court and confront people. Sure. In order to prosecute effectively, generally speaking, you need community involvement. Like in order to do the job, it takes a village, right, to raise the communal child, right, the community itself. And so we do need people to do their part. If we can alleviate that process, make it a little easier for them, for, again, for de minimis cases, then that is a win-win. And again, and I, I may have misunderstood this, but it sounds to me like in Howard County, this is something that is going to be initiated through the arresting officers or the investigating officers, as opposed to having reached the prosecutor's office or reached the sheriff's office and that sort of thing. Is that the mechanism? So the, the, the primary mechanism, there are different types of referrals. The referrals sure. can come in, so there can be a social referral where someone calls and says, hey, I think this person would be a good candidate for lead. They can do that independent of officer interaction. Okay. Then you have law enforcement interaction referrals, whereby a police officer is called to address a problem in the community, interacts with someone, assesses them, and determines that they might be a good candidate and may begin the process. A third way is for our office, the public defender's office, to say, this person has been recommended for prosecution. However, we think they might be a good lead candidate. And then we evaluate and then match, then de determine if there's a good match. And if there is a good match, then they get sent that way. Those are the different onboarding ramps for lead. I like your description of it. I, my daughter lived in King County, which is Seattle, for a long time. And so I kind of was aware of the lead program out there. And I know with some of the interactions between the public and police, there kind of came an outcry. How can we trust the police to be the initiators of, of these you know, alternatives to prosecution? And you know, having multiple different aspects of the process be capable of doing it, it seems to me it's a solution to some of the problems that they perceive that they've had out there across, because they've, they've had that program for like a decade or so. Yes, it's not a new solution, it's just new to this space. So it has been applied and it has been effective in other spaces. I think it would be an asset to bring here, which is why we work to initiate the program in Howard County. So is there any kind of training for police officers or prosecutors or anyone about the existence or criteria of the program? Absolutely. So we have robust training both for police and for our office, for the prosecutors, because it's a collaborative process. We still work together. There's a operational work group, which meets, they meet weekly right now. They'll probably get changed and pushed out as the program grows. But for right now, because it's in its inception, they meet at regular intervals weekly right now to evaluate those that are enrolled and next courses of action, next steps and you know, evaluate the process. It's being fine, it's fine-tuned constantly. It's very much a hands-on process for the office. One other note, we were able to launch the program with funds from the governor's office. And so this, this comes at no cost to county taxpayers. The lead program itself, launching that program, did not cost Howard County taxpayers a penny. Sounds like a good thing. I mean, I perceive, and again, I'm not on the bench or in the prosecutor's chair, but diversion programs historically in Maryland have been beneficial. You know, people have veterans courts and drug courts and all kinds of things. And there are an awful lot of people who fall into incarceration, you know, through circumstances that really 
don't seem just, at least to me. So I, this sounds like a wonderful thing. And I hope it works out. And I hope that in the future, you can come back and, and give me all sorts of statistical data that, that vindicates all of this. We do check the data, Bob. So I'll be glad to share it once we have it. So I was going to talk to you next about body-worn cameras. I know there's the county councils getting ready to vote on that. And, and I wonder what your thoughts are about that. I have always been a proponent of body-worn camera. It is a tool for capturing the truth of interactions between the community and law enforcement and whatever that may be. That could be showing that the officer did something wrong. That could be showing that the person in our community did something wrong. What people don't understand is that it is a tremendous amount of work and the amount of work is actually borne by the state's attorney's office, right? And so not to say the police don't bear work they do, there's certainly work up for the police as well, but a huge chunk of the work is borne by us because we have legal obligations that relates to any evidence in a case. So right. any evidence which shows the defendant did it that we want to use, we could turn over. Any evidence which would exculpate or show the defendant didn't commit the crime, we have to turn over. Any evidence that would contradict or lower the credibility of a witness, we have to turn over. So if a car was being pulled over for DUI and the officer said in his police report that the car was red, but the body-worn camera shows that the car is blue, that video has to be turned over, not because it has any bearing on whether the driver was drunk or not in operating the vehicle, but because that's grounds, it's fertile grounds for cross-examination of the officer's observation skills as it relates to the color of the car. And so it creates a huge body of evidence that we have to sort through, redact what shouldn't go out, include what should go out, and then process. And that takes time and it has to be watched in real. There's no shortcuts. There's no fast forward. Because if you fast forward and you miss a key moment, you've now potentially put a person at risk. If an inner person is interviewed at the hospital and a police officer goes to the hospital and officers have a code they can punch in to get into the hospital, if you don't redact out that code, you put that video out there, now anybody knows how to get into our hospital and can just walk right in there. And that's a, a security risk to anyone who happens to be sick and in the hospital at that, in that moment in time. And so we have an obligation to watch and be thorough and be careful and redact what needs to be redacted and include what needs to be included. And so it requires a significant growth in our office. So we're going to grow. If everything goes as planned and we are fully funded by the council, we'll grow by 13 people, right? And we'll need people to actually handle and process the information. We'll need actual prosecutors to handle the cases. Body-worn camera also has a different interesting effect on trials. So you probably will have less trials, right? Which you pick up some cost savings there, some time savings there. But the trials you do have will take longer because now you'll have another method of, of evidence you have to produce. Having tried body-worn camera cases myself, what ends up happening typically is you go through the oral testimony of asking the witness the questions you normally ask them. And then you play the video with that witness to corroborate and or further distill down their observations. And so trials take longer, but you will probably have less trials, right? So in your experience, how closely does the testimony of the officers and the defense track the video? It usually tracks well, but as you know, you're a trial lawyer as well, Bob. As you know, trial is a, a living, breathing beast on itself. And you could talk to someone 20 times and you get in the courtroom and all of a sudden, a new, something, something different than what has been previously conveyed is conveyed. And you have to manage that appropriately. Right, whatever that means for your position in the case. So without reflecting on Howard County particularly, but a recurrent problem, and I don't do a great deal of criminal defense, but I've been at this so long, I've done a fair amount. 
is that you will we'll ask for items, you know, discovery and the, the famous case versus the state of Maryland that, that encapsulates the obligations of prosecutors to provide exculpatory evidence. And I'll come into court fairly routinely having made requests, let's say in a DUI, and I will be handed the materials, and I'm thinking more Montgomery and Prince George's County, on the date or the morning of the trial. And it's just such a daunting thing to sift through it and see if there's anything that's helpful. And I have to think that there's going to be, and maybe not in Howard County, but that there's going to be elements of getting body-worn video as you come into court on the date in question. And I wonder if there are things that can be done. I mean, 13 employees would certainly help sift through it for impending trials. I'm just wondering if there's anything that can be done to enhance the likelihood that Brady materials are promptly given to defense lawyers so they can look at them. Because I also think what you said earlier is true. There will be fewer trials as a result of the existence of this concrete evidence. But I'm also thinking that that might have the effect of reducing trials if it's conveyed early enough in the process to the defense lawyers. I mean, so we always, so discovery rules in circuit court and district court are different. Right. And so obviously in district court, you can turn it over. Like what you describe in district court is a practice that occurs just due to Everywhere. the volume of district court. So, yeah. you know, in a given month in district court, for instance, in Howard County, and we're the sixth largest jurisdiction. So they're, they're you know, they're five bigger than us. The average district court volume is around three to 400 cases per month. Right. It's a lot. Right. Circuit court is, you know, you're talking about teens and 20s and 30s. Oh, yeah. so it's, it's a three to 400 is very different from 30 cases. Right. And so in circuit court, you discovery rules require you turn it over, you know, within 30 days from the entry of appearance or the arraignment, right? Once you process all the information. Whereas with district court, it can be turned over the day over. But to your point, Bob, obviously if the evidence is concrete, in a DUI case, if the guys, if you see the alcohol, open alcohol container in the car and, the, and he's clearly slurring his words and slop and so on and so forth, you turn that over as quickly as possible, which again, relates to how many people we have to process the information is advantageous because the minute you see that, now you go into mitigation mode as defense counsel. It's, just, it's not whether you're pleading guilty, it's just, can we possibly, you know, mea culpa, find a way to, to mitigate this thing down from the worst possible punishment one might get, right? You know, I think it's an excellent idea and I do think it would have some positive impacts on reducing trial volumes and everything else. So COVID has to have had a profound effect on your office in that the court systems themselves for the most part, shut down completely. And I wondered if you could talk generally about your efforts to adjust to it and the caseload and that sort of thing. Absolutely. So it, it was an unprecedented challenge. We had to first, again, our office is about 76 or so personnel at the moment. We pared that down to about 20 that were actually on staff. Crime doesn't stop, and so neither can we. We don't have that luxury. Sure. And so we had to be here because there's still cases coming in, but we reduced the number of people that were here because we wanted to, we did not want to have to shut down. There were attorneys offices around the state that had to actually shutter their doors because they had outbreaks in those spaces. We were fortunate enough to avoid that. And I think the way we managed the crisis allowed us to be successful in that arena. So we pared it down to about 20 people in the office as opposed to 76. Everyone else was working remotely and we put everyone on a rotation. We had hand sanitizers and masks and all the, the, all the policy rules in place to keep everyone safe. I was able to work with the Department of Health and our county executive to get our office prioritized because we work with the public so directly. We got the vaccine in February. We're able to get the grand jury back up and running, I believe, 
in April, but don't quote me on that, but leave in April. And we had a backlog of about 70 or 80 cases, which we were able to process through. We basically double time. So the, our grand jury meets every two weeks, every Thursday, every other Thursday, every two weeks. So we move that to every week. We're meeting you know, every week as opposed to every other week. And we're able to process through that backlog relatively quickly once we got fired up. Our attorneys now do have higher cases. Like we have more cases in the hopper now than we normally would. And because of the way trials work, it's going to take about a year to a year and a half to equalize just because it's just the way that trials are scheduled and the pace of things. And, you know, some will please, some will not. And some, you know, really, you really don't have the room to offer a, there's no fireside sale for justice. So you're not going to, you know, if someone murdered somebody, you're not going to short that deal because, you know, you're trying to be trying to lighten your caseload that that wouldn't be equitable. That wouldn't be right. And so we don't do that. I would imagine defense lawyers have been waving the speedy trial flag on some of this stuff. And there's really not a great deal you can do about it. And I don't know quite how I come down on that. It is challenging. I mean, look, the reality is that it's a pandemic. Everything was shut down. And certainly, you know, if you look at your Barker Wingo elements, you look at your, you look at the analysis, the bottom line is good cause for the postponement is there. And the idea of prosecuting a case and bringing people into the courtroom, bringing jurors into the courtroom, pick a juror for like a serious case, like a 10 and 20, you're talking about over 100 people, 130, 140 people in that panel that's to be sitting in a room together, just not safe to do. And then you have the court personnel that are constantly exposed to a rotating number of people just that churn through a courthouse. It's a face-to-face people-based business. One other point about COVID, as of right now, we are back at full staff. Everyone's in the office. Our job is the kind of job that you really can't work remotely effectively. It's hard to gauge the truth or candor of an individual via a remote setting. You might not, you might miss certain cues whether they look up at a certain time or they tap their leg, that might be helpful to you in assessing that. And you can't assess them when you're only looking at a person on the screen. Sure. Additionally, a lot of our, our solutions are crowdsourced. So someone will step out in the hallway and, and just by chance walk by and be like, hey, you know, what do you think of this? And next thing you, know, you have three, four people just talking through, just organically talking through that problem and then employing the solutions from those conversations in the courtroom. And so a lot of them, you know, you put a, it's like a brain trust type atmosphere with a bunch of or hive mind, whatever you want, whatever analogy you want to use, but a lot of different minds lend themselves to the solutions that we actually employ for the benefit of the community. And you can do that via video conference, but it's not organic. And it's not nearly as effective as just stepping out in the hallway, which happens literally every moment of every day in this office and just running into a colleague. And then someone else sees you talking and they join the conversation. And then before you know it, you have four or five people that are all brilliant in their own regard, applying their intellect to the problem. And so we're, we're back full staffed. Everyone's here. Well, as a Howard County resident, I'm pleased to hear that. Final thing, we tend to have more criminal defense attorneys than we do prosecutors on, but we had a fellow, Mark Bookman from Philadelphia, who is a man who's dedicated his life to combating the death penalty and combating mass incarceration. And obviously, we are not dealing with the death penalty issue in Maryland, something that he brought up in our discussion. And I just wondered if you felt that progress is being made on reducing mass incarceration in Maryland? Hard question, Bob. I think there is progress being made. I think that the key is not to incarcerate less people because you're just turning a blind eye to the crime they're committing. Sure. Key is to address the underlying behaviors that drive crime in the first place so you don't have to incarcerate so many people. So how you reduce incarceration matters, right? It's not just about driving down the numbers because we can just, we can stop prosecuting crime and we won't incarcerate anyone but our society will be less safe as a result. And so 
I think you have to examine it from the, from the aspect of how do we go about reducing incarceration? What are the levers we're pulling on to reduce this type of activity? How are we creating opportunities for people aside from crime? How are we addressing inequalities that are, exist in our system that are the fodder for criminal behavior down the road, right? How are we addressing educational inequality? How are we addressing financial inequality? How are we addressing health inequality? All the things that drive crime, right? Examine those things and drive those metrics down and crime as a result will drop and you could attack mass incarceration. Mass incarceration is a consequence, not a cause, right? And so I think the approach is important. You know, I am fully in favor of reducing incarceration by attacking the drivers of incarceration, but not by just wholesale ignoring crime. I, our society cannot be left unsafe. And I think that safety is a social justice issue. The right to be safe in your space is a social justice issue, and that cannot be ignored. I have to admit, I agree with you completely on that. And uh, the societal drivers are a problem that elude this country in a lot of places. But hopefully we will continue with things like having the body-worn cameras and the lead program and things that potentially could reduce incarceration and increase opportunities for people to thrive in our country and our state and our county. I'd like to thank you for appearing back on Everyday Law, Rich, and I hope if anything entertaining comes up in the next year or two, you uh, give me a call or send me an email and, and come back on. Absolutely. It's my pleasure as always, Bob. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk to you and to your group. Thank you very much. This has been Everyday Law. Farewell. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.